Good morning, Redeemer. There is no group of people, I think, that is more confident about being a parent than non-parents. They have the most confidence. And when I think of really difficult things, really difficult tasks that, that sound kind of easy, I think parenting is one of those things. It's like, how hard could it be? I love tiny humans. Check. How could you not? They're cute. They're adorable. Uh, you got to feed them, make sure they learn how to poop. That's, I can do that. I know how to do that. Uh, no problem. Keep them from destroying themselves and the whole house. I know how to do that. Uh, check. I can show them how to do that. How hard could that be? Teach them to walk and do math and play sports. This is going to be fun. And th- there, there's a reason, though, why we set aside a couple of days a year to uh, show honor and gratitude. And the scriptures call us to honor parents And it's because this, none of you had any idea what you were getting into. None of you had any idea of the trials and the sorrows and the hardship uh, and and the work that it would be. The brochure looked really great. And it is great. But did any of you know how hard it would be? No. That's why the non-parents are the best of us. They know know how to do it. Uh, Some of the most difficult tasks sound super easy until you try them. In today's text, Jesus is going to call on us to forgive. Sounds easy. Check. Simple. Got it, right? Don't even need a sermon. Uh, but whether, whether it was his followers then or whether it's us as we hear it, we know it's a lot harder than it sounds. And so today I want us to consider four realities from Christ's teaching on forgiveness. Number one, the warning. Number two, the command. Number three, the resource. And number four, the recipient. So we begin with number one, the warning. And so after Jesus has been given this extended, uh, these, these extended series of teachings and, and warnings against the Pharisees, he turns now to his disciples and listen to what he says in verse one. He said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come. Now this seems like a really broad uh, saying of Jesus, but it's actually a little more specific. It's this word offense is actually a trap. Something that's, that sneaks up on someone, causes them to trip or stumble. He's saying, watch out, be on guard, he's gonna say. Pe- people are going to sin against you. And he's been telling them about the Pharisees. Like, it's, hey, if, if it's not the Pharisees, it's gonna be somebody else coming along and there's always gonna be people trying to trip up God's people. But look what he says. But woe to the one through whom they come. So he's saying some people will stumble. They're going to hear false teaching and they're going to be tempted to turn from Christ. But woe to the one who causes that. Woe to the one who causes one of these little ones to lose heart. Woe to the one who traps the weak or the vulnerable in legalism. Little ones sometimes means children. That's the language he's using. But often Jesus uses it to refer to the weaker or more, more vulnerable believers. And it's, it's like he's telling them, look, people are going to sin against you, my disciples, and that's bad. But when they come after the little ones, when they come after the vulnerable, I use this line with my boys a lot. It's something along the lines of this. It's, it's hey, you guys may, may rough each other up. You may get in trouble for doing something dumb, uh, accidentally being too rough with your brother. Uh, and, and if someone messes with you, I'll protect you. But you want to know how to really see my anger as a dad? You want to know how to really provoke the wrath of dad? 
And I guarantee that if I brought either of my boys up here on the stage this morning, they would know how to answer this question. No, no doubt. Uh, they know the answer. You wanna make dad really mad? Hurt our little sisters. Hurt our little sisters or mom. And I, I, I can handle them being dorks to each other. Uh, they, you may tussle with each other. Uh, we'll sort it out or you'll sort it out. But I'll sort it out if you mess with my daughters. With, if you mess with your sisters, they're smaller than you. They're sweeter than you. <laughs> and your mom is tough. She could take you, but she's my wife. And so as far as you're concerned, she's fine China. You handle delicately. You treat your mom and your sisters with care or you're, you're asking for it, you're in trouble. And so as my daughters are growing up, I think my boys have also got that. They know if, if one of their friends messes with their sisters, he's in trouble. And I think Luke is showing us the connection to how the Pharisees have treated the weak and the vulnerable as they've, they've harshly treated the weak. They've, they've preyed upon the weak with their legalism. They've created stumbling blocks for unsuspecting people. And just like the talk with my boys, Jesus is saying, hey, offenses are gonna come. You're human. You're gonna get into tussles. That's what humans do. But if you lay a trap for the weak, if you prey upon my precious sons and daughters, look out. Look out. He's saying, look out, Pharisees. Look out, abusers. Look out, false teachers. Look out, legalists. Woe to you. And look, look what he says in verse two. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on guard, he said. These are strong words. I love how Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, how he phrases this, it's pretty funny. He says, better to wear a concrete vest and take a swim with the fishes than give even one of these little ones a hard time. Uh, the idea is, shame on you. Shame on the one who would cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. There's destruction coming for people who practice sorts of, those sorts of things. And I think if I asked you then to predict without us having read it beforehand, if I asked you to predict, okay, what's Jesus gonna talk about now? You'd probably predict that he's gonna talk about how to protect people against wolves or how to, how to protect against false teachers, how to stand up to the Pharisees. But instead, he starts with a warning. It's don't trap people like they do, don't cause people to stumble. And here's what he's gonna move to. He's gonna move to a command. You wanna be different? Here's what you need to do. Verse three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Which is number two, the command. Yikes, simple, right? Check, easy. Here's what your ministry looks like, Jesus is telling them. Here's what you should do with sinners. Not like, not like the Pharisees, here's what you should do. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So all that set up for a lesson on forgiveness. So what distinguishes Christian ministry from the ministry of legalism? Legalism says someone's in sin. So here's the prescription, more stringent law keeping, heavier burdens, work harder. Oh, you failed again? You're condemned, rejected. That's what the Pharisees did. Oh, you're struggling with that again? You're too sinful. You're hanging out with those people? You're disgusting, too unclean. They condemned, they weighed down, they trapped. 
But the gospel says, when we encounter someone else's sins because of Christ, that's not what we do. That's not how we react. No, we rebuke and we forgive. So it seems like this is one command kind of in two parts. If your brother sins, rebuke. This means we we name the offense. Call the sin what it is. Give it a proper name. And this is difficult. It takes courage. Done best. It, it, It happens within a relationship. But Jesus is saying, this is actually love. That when your brother sins, help them see that what they did is sinful. So Jesus has a lot to say about how we do this. Uh, in fact, we see it throughout scripture. There's a lot said about how we do this sort of thing. In fact, I would say if you're overly excited to rebuke, let me just slow you down for a minute. Let me give you two instructions the scripture gives us for rebuking someone. Number one, we do it with humility. Luke chapter six, verse 41. Why do you look at the splendor in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that, let, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye. This means you come in as a fellow sinner. There is no Christian ministry that exists where it consists of the righteous correcting the unrighteous. That is, that is where a, a church view that so, so badly separates the role of pastors and, and church leaders as the elite and, and the rest of us as uh, these other Christians as lower, uh, that's wrong. No, we are all ministers and we are all sinners. So we come in lowly as one who likely had a, has a plank sticking out of our own eye when we come to help them with their speck. And number two, you also come in gently as a gentle sibling. Galatians 6, six, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. And, and what would they be tempted to do? They'd be tempted to take a position of pride, of, of harshness. Listen, if you are excited to deliver a harsh rebuke, then don't deliver the rebuke. Let someone who's mature enough to not be excited about it do it. Come in gently as a brother, as a sister, as a loving parent. Come in with humility and love. And don't be so self-important as to offer the rebuke but not be willing to help carry the burden. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Now, the second part of the command is, if your brother repents, forgive. Whew, that's not hard, right? Piece of cake. This is where I wondered where my Mother's Day sermon was that I misplaced that I could have preached this morning instead. Um, So what does it mean uh, to forgive? And I'm gonna give us some more specifics, but, but I think forgiveness is in its essence, debt cancellation. It's debt cancellation. Let's look back at the story of the unforgiving servant. We've referenced this story a couple of times as we've walked through Luke. This is actually a story in Matthew 18, Uh, but it tells the story of a king, uh, you can follow along on the screen, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, uh, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller amount. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into the prison until he could pay what was owed. I think this is this story, this parable is one of the best pictures of forgiveness. There are, are two forgiveness stories happening in that one. One of a larger debt forgiven and one of a small debt not forgiven. But in, in both cases, to forgive meant canceling the debt. So, so when someone mistreats you, when they sin against you, they stand in your debt. There's a rift, a separation. And forgiveness aims to wipe out the debt, to repair the rift. Now, before you think of all the objections in your mind you have to this, uh, let's, we'll, let's talk a little bit more about what forgiveness is and then we'll, we'll get to some of those about what, what forgiveness isn't. Um, there's a lot to say on this and I, I'll just tell you, I'm not gonna say everything there is to say this morning. But let's, let's look, Here, here's, I think Tim, Tim Keller gives uh, four action steps to, into the process of forgiveness in his new book that came out last year on uh, forgiveness. He says, step one is name it as sin or as wrong. This is, this is the rebuke. Call it what it is. Call the debt a debt. Number two, identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner. This is what the master does in the parable. The master has compassion. He feels for him. It's, this is humility. You, you see yourself in them and you see the sinner in yourself. You're, you're acknowledging how alike you are. And I, I think this step is the hardest. I had a friend in a small group that I led a number of years ago and, and I remember her saying, I remember so clearly her saying, I could never forgive my dad. I could never forgive him. And the more we talked, it became so clear that the only way she was ever going to forgive her dad was if she could see that she was like him. If she, if she could see that she also had a debt that had to have been forgiven. That's the only way any of us will give or will forgive. I think that's what God's word is saying. Colossians 3 says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility. There's this, this is that same list of things, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That's the only way, is as we see uh, that we are a sinner too, it must be forgiven. This, is, this, I think, is the step of forgiveness working out in, in our hearts, which I think is really where forgiveness starts. Starts in our hearts. Third, release them by absorbing or canceling the debt. I think this is the, the outward act, the, the moving of forgiveness, the releasing of a person from the debt. So it's kind of inward and outward. When a debt is canceled, the offended no longer has to pay. Meaning, I won't hold on to my wrath anymore. I won't hold on to my anger anymore, my aggression. No, instead, now, I want what's good for them. 
But this is, this is a painful step. It's, it's actually a step of suffering and a step of trust. When you forgive a financial debt, it's not as though that money just pops back into your account. No, you lost it. You had to pay it. It was a loss. Now, we'll talk about this in a minute, but you may ask, well, does canceling a debt then rule out consequences or justice? And the answer to that is no. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I th- this, this, this does not happen. None of this happens overnight. I think this, this step is both an action and a commitment. It's something you do at once and then it's something that you commit to keep doing. Keller says it this way, uh, that this is how this step bears out. He says, you promise, number one, not to constantly bring the sin up to the wrongdoer, to browbeat and punish them. Number two, you promise not to constantly bring the sin up to other people, to hurt their reputation. And then number three, you promise not to constantly bring the sin up to yourself, not to keep the anger hot, not to replay it in order to cherish the feeling of virtue that comes from having been treated unjustly. So there's a, there's a inner and an outer work that's happening here as we, as we forgive a debt. And then the final step is we aim for reconciliation. I think this is the aim, the trajectory of forgiveness. And this is the step, I think, that though it's part of the process, there are some times where it's not possible. There are some times where reconciliation won't occur this side of heaven. But it is the aim, though not always possible. Especially apart from repentance. And I think this is what Jesus is showing us too, that repentance is part of the, it's part of the work. The forgiveness won't make it all the way uh, without it. And so sometimes this final step doesn't make it all the way through, but we desire for it to. Jesus goes on in verse four. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So basically it keeps getting worse is what we're reading. Uh, I mean, so somebody's sinning against me, that's bad. So he's gonna sin against me seven times like not just seven times in our life, seven times in a day. Like this is like, do you have an alarm set on your phone? Like to remind you to go back? Like this is not pleasant. And I don't think he's saying it's just seven and like the eighth, you're off the hook. You can take out all your anger on them. No, forgive. This is, this is hyperbole. You've got to keep forgiving. And so does he just have to, does the, does the person just have to say they repent too? I read that and I'm like, they just got to say it? Like if you've, if you've sinned against me seven times in the same way in the same day, I don't think I believe you anymore. Like that's what my kids say when, when, when they're saying, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, I don't think I believe that uh, because your behavior would suggest I don't need to believe that. Uh, now the, the, the Lord does give us means to discern whether people are being sincere. I think we, we shouldn't neglect that. Second Corinthians seven, uh, Paul tells the Corinthian church, uh, here's how I knew you were truly repentant. And he lists out what godly sorrow looks like. Matthew 18 gives us steps to approach somebody who's kind of continuing on in a state of unforgiveness and unrepentance. But whether we believe or not, I don't think Jesus is really giving a lot of leeway in this one. He's not saying, if you believe them, forgive. He says, if he says he repents, the call is to forgive. And since that probably brings up within you a few objections, 
uh, we've talked about what forgiveness is. Let's talk about what forgiveness isn't. Five things forgiveness is not. This is from uh, Brad Hambrick's uh, great book on forgiveness. Uh, he says, he gives, he gives five. Forgiveness is not, number one, pretending I'm not hurt. Keller addresses that this way. He says, forgiveness is granted often a good while before it is felt. Not felt before it is granted. If you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. You'll be in an anger prison. So forgiveness is not saying, I'm not bothered by this anymore. It didn't hurt me. That's not what forgiveness is. Secondly, forgiveness is not letting someone off the hook. There are still consequences for sin. That person that you're forgiving may still have a lot of work to do to bear out the fruit that bears with repentance. Like justice may still be coming in particular ways for them. But one of the, one of the encouragements that I, I heard uh, that, that Keller mentions is uh, that if we pursue justice without first forgiving, it often becomes vengeance. And number three, forgiveness is not making an excuse for someone. It's not saying, ah, it's no big deal. Not your fault. Don't worry about it. Fourth, forgiveness is not forgetting. Certainly we hope we'll think of the sins against us less the longer we're alive. But many pains stick around, don't they? This is why I think one of the beautiful things that we say each week when we take the Lord's Supper is Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, when we take the meal, will you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? It means until he comes, you need to remember the cross. You need to remember in this meal what Christ has done because you have sin that you're gonna be dealing with and guess what? You've got offenses that you're receiving from others that ultimately are handled by the cross. And then lastly, forgiveness is not necessarily trust or reconciliation. Things may not fully be back to the way they were relationally. They may not get there. Forgiveness wants to trust, but it may not be possible. Listen, we struggle with this because it's difficult. If you struggle with this, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because it's hard. But I, I do think we also struggle with this in maybe a, a way that we shouldn't because we have a theological understanding of sin, but practically our view of the Christian life is one that expects Christian perfection. And so for this reason, ideas like rebuke and correction and forgiveness, even things like honesty and confession, these seem so far outside of the realm of what should be normal or acceptable for a Christian. And so in our minds then needing rebuke or forgiveness, this is only for the worst people, only for the bad Christians. Church, can we just reject that? Can we, can we say that and just together agree that that is a rejection of the gospel? That actually is, goes against what the scriptures say. Now we wanna live according to what we believe, what our theology says, which that means there is really no one righteous. That like Paul, we often do the things, the very thing that we don't wanna do. And if we live and we act and believe that that's true, then we should be the most forgiving the most rebukable, the least appalled by the sins of others, dare I even say the most difficult to offend 
type of people in the world. Why? Because we believe what Ephesians 4 says, verse 32, that we forgive one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. That's who we were. We had to be forgiven. Which leads to number three, the resource. So when the apostles heard that they had to forgive the same person seven times a day, or in in the Matthew account, 70 times seven. So these numbers are just getting off the charts. Uh, The only appropriate response to this kind of task that lays in front of you is exactly what they said in verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like it's disheartening, Lord. We need help. Parents, it's kind of like if the 20 year old version of you were to talk to you uh, today and ask you the question, self, when I have a family, how many times will I have to do the laundry in order for the laundry, all the laundry in the house to be clean? You know how you, you would answer them? Forever. You'll have to do it forever. It never is all clean. But that's the answer, isn't it? How often will I have to forgive? A lot. Forever. At least on this earth. We hear this and we're disheartened like the apostles were, right? How many times? So so what you're basically saying is continual forgiveness is what we're talking about. And so we cry out for mercy like them. Lord, help us. If this is the task, then the task is too difficult. Increase our faith. That's the only way. You gotta help us, Lord. And so how does Jesus answer them? Does he say, okay, close your eyes and on the count of three, one, two, no. He doesn't grant it like that, does he? He says this. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's all you, that's all you need, he said. The size of a mustard seed, that's small. That's it. No big increase. You're waiting for these big gains. You're going to the gym, getting your, in, your, in, your gains of faith. Nope, that's not it. It's, it's not about the gains. It's not about the amount of faith increasing. It's all about the object. It's not, do you really, 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 really trust Christ? No, it's, is Christ your trust? It's not, is my faith enough? Can I do it? Do I, do I believe enough to forgive? No, it's, is my Christ enough? And look what can happen when Christ is in view. He says, If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now, that is nowhere in my list of ambitions or aspirations for my life is to displace and replant a mulberry tree. So I don't even know what that looks like. Um, I'm not interested. If you wanna do it, you can send me pictures. Uh, But but I think there, there was a belief about this particular kind of tree and they think it was a black mulberry tree. Um, there was a Jewish belief that, that this was some sort of extraordinary tree with roots that would go deeply into the ground, like 600 year type roots. And so uprooting a black mulberry tree was like, that's basically impossible is what we're saying. And then replanting it, 600 years of roots replanted, not possible. Oh yeah, and how about we just plant it in the sea? Like this is like some weird science project. Uh, No, like all of it, impossible. So this is not some complicated landscaping lesson in case you were wondering. Jesus is just saying, he's saying this. 
that person that you thought you could never forgive, the one who scarred you so badly that if you saw their car in the parking lot, you would drive away. You wouldn't stay. With faith the size of a mustard seed, you can forgive that person. You can. And it's not because you have a economy-sized storehouse of faith. No, your only hope for being able to forgive is that your hope is in a huge Christ. That's where your inner trust is. It's in the hugeness of your Christ. Because of Christ, you can forgive. Notice I didn't say because of Christ, you will be reconciled. For some of you, your situation, it might not be wise. It might be unsafe. It might be inappropriate for you to pursue a a close relationship with that person again. And I would encourage you, if you're wrestling with what it looks like for you in your situation, talk to one of the pastors, Go, go talk to a counselor and get some encouragement on how to proceed wisely with forgiveness. But only a tiny shred of faith in Jesus is what is it needed to enable you to have a heart posture that says, I'm no longer bitter. I no longer hold a grudge. No, I actually want good for them. I don't want vengeance. And now you, you may hear that and go, so that's it? Like that's the solution, just faith. I mean, it's like, I gotta have faith a faith a faith that's the George Michael. I mean, that's, that's all you've got for us? You gotta have faith? That's it? And maybe it sounds really trite to say that, just trust God. But sometimes the real answer is both trite and incredibly profound. So yes, the real answer is faith. Trust Christ, go to him. But I think Jesus gives us one more picture, one more metaphor to help us understand it even even more, to help us feel it, which leads us to number four, the recipient. He gives this, this parable. He says, which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. And Sid, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. This is a a bit of a strange story, but I think there's some some profound truth in it. Um, Also, just as a side note, this is a classic Mother's Day story uh, because every mom gets this story it's like you come home and your family members, they wash the dishes, they clean the house. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the applause, aren't they? They want, the, and it's like, and moms, you, you know just how to say it. Hey, great job, guys. But you live here too. Like, this is all of our jobs. I'm not the one. Uh, are you waiting for applause? Just say, we're unworthy servants who did it. Um, so there's the Mother's Day. Uh, but, but look at what this story is saying. Jesus has called us to faithfully do the work. And what is the work? He's called us to faithfully do the work of forgiving. And now, 
This story almost seems to be saying like Jesus is, is saying, okay, so you forgave someone, big whoop. Good job. You did your duty. What else do you want? But I want to put this in the context of, of these two gospel accounts where we see Jesus having this exchange about forgiveness. In, in response to these questions, in Matt, both in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus tells two very different stories. Uh, and I think they both show us two very different kinds of servants. Um, a servant who will forgive when sinned against and one who won't. And so I'm, I want to just kind of end with show, giving us those two servants. So option one is you can be a Matthew servant, the Matthew 18 servant. If you remember, right after Jesus has told Peter, you got to forgive 70 times 70, that's when he tells the story of the unforgiving servant. Will you be that Matthew 18 servant? You've been forgiven a huge debt by the master, remember? And then a small offense comes against you, a brother or sister that sins against you. What do you do? Rather than forgive, you demand payment. You want vengeance you want to choke them out with your anger. So the master is furious. He throws the unforgiving servant into prison. Where does your lack of faith, or your lack of forgiveness, and your lack of willingness to forgive, where does that land you? Lands you in prison. I think the story, that story is showing forgiveness from Christ is yours. You are like the servant forgiven a great debt. But if, you, if by unforgiving, you wanna choke out those who owe you small offenses, when you're unable to do that, you end up in prison. Because you couldn't forgive, you're showing that you never truly understood the forgiveness that was yours in Christ. And isn't that how unforgiveness works? We think we're exacting vengeance on somebody else, but really we're the one who's being harmed. Option two, the Luke servant. Will you be the Luke 17 servant? This servant, in the story we just read, uh, this servant has also had their debt settled by the master. In fact, that was the only way you became a servant. Your debt is paid by the master. That's why you live in the house. That's how you're there. And so each day, the servant or the master sends the servant out into the field. So you go out into the field. You're out working for the master. And what is the regular work of a servant of Christ? Rebuking, correcting, showing compassion, forgiving, forgiving the debts of those who sinned against you. And at the end of the day's work, you come into the master's house. And what does he do? He throws a huge party for you, right? No, he welcomes you back in with little fanfare. In fact, what do you do? You finish the day by serving the master still. And later you'll enjoy the master's food. You'll enjoy the master's house as you rest. But here, here's the question. For the servant who's been out serving in the field and comes into the master's house, who's been doing the forgiving and doing the hard work, does you forgiving others mean that the savior owes you something? Is he in debt to you now? Look how much you're working and serving and forgiving, caring for the sheep, plowing the crop. I think his listeners would get it. And they would understand. What else would the servant do? That's not his land. That's the master's land. Who hired the workers? Who paid for the land in the first place? Who even, who even gave the servant a place to sleep? 
We want to say, look how much I've done. Look what I've forgiven. Look what I've done. And Jesus says, no, look to your father. Look what he has done. Look to the grace I've given you. Look at the debt I paid for you. And so I ask that to us. Do we now forgive others so that God might repay us for our service? No. And you know why? We don't need to be repaid. We're already welcomed. We're already brought into the Father's house. We've already been forgiven. This means we can go out into the the field of our world and we can do more work. We can forgive more sins. We can have compassion on those who might not treat us well. And And then we return at the end of a hard day's work to the comfort of the master's side. However, whenever we come to him, what do we get to do? We get to serve him. We get to be with him. Listen, you're, if you're a Christian today, if you've been forgiven by the father, then you're already in the father's house. You need no other reward, no other recognition. No, we simply say we're unworthy servants. What more could we need? Look, forgiveness is hard. I, I, we've said it a lot this morning. It's true. We all know it is. We need Christ's help. But the only one act of forgiveness that is truly a miracle is not that you and I would forgive others, but that Christ forgave us. That's the miracle. That's worth the party. Jesus Christ took the death we earned. We should have been choked out because of our sin, but no, the master became our servant. He died a criminal's death for us in our place. He absorbed our debt. He, he took our, he canceled it for us and then he rose again. And now he welcomes us in. And now each Sunday when we gather together as the household of God, as we gather as his children, whether on a week that you forgave a lot of people or whether it was a week where you needed a lot of forgiveness, we all stand before the father offender and offended alike, deserving no pardon, but receiving grace. So we stand not as those who earned a celebration this week, but as unworthy servants, still invited back to the feast week after week. That means we aren't singing any songs about your mercy today. We're not singing any songs about my forgiving, my grace. No, it's all about him. That's why we're here. We bring nothing, but what have we received? Everything. So church, as the forgiven of God, may we also forgive. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, would you help us? Lord, where something is stirring in in many of us and Lord, where your spirit is speaking and you're prompting us and and having us consider how, how what does it look like for me to forgive in that situation? Lord, would the overriding, would the overriding feeling not be one of weight, but one of joy as we look to the cross, as we breathe freely, knowing that our debt is paid.
And then Lord, would you give us the faith to walk it out? The faith to rebuke, the faith to forgive, the faith uh, to bear hurts and to come again to your cross, to your table for refreshment, for encouragement, to remember what you've done for us. So lead us now as your children. Make us a forgiving people. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.